Well, good morning again, just in case I need that. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, if you'd get those out, uh, you can turn to the book of Acts with me and uh, find uh, chapter 6. We're going to be in chapter 6 and 7 today. Um, I wanted to read something else to you before we get there. Uh, But while you are turning to Acts, if you take out your core guide, if you got one of those or if you just have a blank piece of paper, I want you to write down a sentence at the top of it uh, that kind of is the, maybe the theme. We're going to try and end just a little bit earlier than we normally do so that we can get the sanctuary uh, changed over for the spaghetti feed. And, um, and so we might cut this just a little bit short, but I want to make sure that you have the sermon sentence, okay? Got your pen ready? As a Christ follower, I ought to know, share, and live the story of God. You got that? As a Christ follower, I ought to know, share, and live the story of God. And then if you want to organize the rest of your notes this morning, you can write three words that we just spoke out loud. You can write three words, know, share, and live. And while you're doing that, I want to read you some words from Jesus. These were instructions that he gave to his followers, to his disciples, as he was sending them out into ministry, okay? These are Jesus' instructions. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles." You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. I'm, not, I'm going to close my eyes for a second. Anybody want to sign up for that or, or back out on that? Those are pretty pointed words of Jesus, right? I mean, you can't really, you can't really misconstrue any of those, can you? Now, throughout the history of the church, people have figured out a way to get around this text. Um, the, the way to get around these words of Jesus is to leave Jesus out of the conversation. You know, churches are um, sometimes good at this. If you have a church that has lots of really nice things, good music, preacher who gives nice motivational speeches, has just the right amount of humor injected to keep the mood light, um, if you have the right coffee, if you have fun things to do for the kids, people, people won't hate you for that. People will like that. People will show up for things like that. But if you preach Jesus, 
if you stand up for what Jesus believes, well, sometimes people back away from that, bristle a little bit. Hey, I can do with my life whatever I want to do, and you can't tell me otherwise. And so if you preach enough of Jesus and he gets up in your grill, well, sometimes people, eh, I don't, I don't want to go that far. Just give me all those nice things. It's tempting. You have to admit that it's tempting to soften the message of Jesus sometimes. We just read that. Wouldn't you like to soften the message that Jesus, people will hate you because of me? And so for years, the church, particularly in North America, has softened the message. Um, you see a lot of it. If you look around at the, the Christian climate in, in our country, one in our churches, too, um, you might see a lot of full buildings, but you see a lot of empty lives. You see people who are void of any substance uh, in their teaching. There's a moral decline in our country. A lot of that can be brought to bear on church, the church softening, softening the message of Jesus. But I, I hope you know enough about me. I hope you know that I love you enough to resist that temptation. We're here not to meet the minimum requirements for faith. We gather on a weekly basis. We gather more than on a weekly basis in, in our core groups so that we can go deeper in our faith together and get down to the meat of Scripture and what it means for our lives. I want to pursue seeing God's glory in, evident in and through our lives, through our church, and poured out into this community. And that's only going to happen is if each and every one of us makes Jesus the very, very center of our story. And that's what we, sometimes you have to just stand back, because sometimes we get, we get into Scripture and we go deep in Scripture, but when you, when you step back and see where it is we're going and what it is we're doing, the effort each week is to place Jesus at the very center of what we do here in this room, but also that when you leave from here, that you go encouraged and challenged to put Jesus in the very center of your life every single day of the week. Our, our text that we're getting to in Acts today brings us face-to-face uh, -face with a man who was faithful to the very end. And in the end, the text says that he saw the glory of God, and his name is Stephen. The, this particular message, um, we have, we're looking at the book of Acts kind of throughout 2019. And there, it's broken up into three kind of mini-series, if you will, and this message concludes the first mini-series, which is True Church Receiving Power, talking about the, the work of the Holy Spirit um, and how the Holy Spirit empowers everything that we do. And next week we'll launch into the next one. But today... 
our text introduces us to Stephen. And it leads us all the way up to a very significant shift in the book of Acts. And when we get to the end of chapter 7, it seems like it seems like the rulers and authorities may have won, may have silenced this new Jesus movement. But what we find as we, as we get to the end of chapter 7 and into the early part of chapter 8, which we'll go next week, we find that instead of silencing this Christian movement by this oppression, that it actually is a catalyst for growth in the church. And so we see today how the Holy Spirit has come to bear in one particular man's life. And in the coming weeks, we'll see how this same Holy Spirit scatters the gospel all over the known world. So what do we know about Stephen? If we look at Acts chapter 6, I'm going to talk a little bit about verses um, 1 to 7 just really briefly right now, but in our meeting that's going to happen in just a little bit, I want to look back at Acts chapter 6, uh, 1 through 7 for a few minutes. But, but for now, um, what you need to know about the early part of chapter 6 is that the church was, it was growing um, rapidly, in fact. And when something grows rapidly, there's usually growing pains. And so there were some issues that were going on in that church, some tensions, and the apostles, they selected seven guys to address the problems. And Stephen is one of the seven that are selected as, a, as the word that we sometimes use, deacon or servant, to help this growing church uh, address the, the growing pains. And Stephen had a good reputation. He was uh, said to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. He was a man of faith, filled with grace and power. And as we learn in this story, he ends up being the very first Christian martyr on record. He's killed for his witness. He healed, he preached, uh, he displayed the power of the Holy Spirit, and all of that got the attention of the leaders. And so in chapter 6, if, we, if you pick up your, the text here in uh, verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom, the spirit that gave him uh, as he spoke. So he's being filled up in the moment. The Holy Spirit is giving him the words and the wisdom to answer his critics, to teach in the moment. And so when people rose up against him, he had words to say, the wisdom from the spirit, and they could not stand against it. So they were losing this argument, is, is what we just learned, right? And so then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So what do you do when you lose an argument? You make up stories. Fake news, right? That was funnier than you gave me credit for. <laughs> Verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law 
they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, so the high council again. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. So the, the accusation is that he's speaking against the temple and against the law of Moses. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I could get distracted by that last sentence for a while. What does it mean that they saw that his face was like the face of an angel? I mean, did his eyes glow? Like rays of light? Was his beard shimmer? I don't, I don't know. Just imagine that for a little bit. What I think we need to learn from that is that there was a sense that the wisdom that he had and the power of the Holy Spirit was somehow fully evident in everything about him. That when he spoke, he was speaking the word of God. And that would set anybody back. Oh, we better listen to this. Or if you are threatened by this, you know, the threat, and the threat is, goes to an increased um, sense here. And I think that there's a couple lessons in the speech that Stephen is about to give here. It's the longest speech in Acts. And I'm not going to read the whole thing for you. I'm going to give you the highlights, but your assignment going from this place is to read Stephen's speech. Because if you would like a succinct summary of the history of God and his people, Israel, uh, that is found in the Old Testament, it's all in this speech. He rehearses the whole history of God from Abraham all the way to the present day. So if you want, uh, if, if you want a really good way to explain to people what the Old Testament is all about, this is a great chapter to come back and look at. But, but the things that we can learn from his speech are, one, know the story. Know the story. Stephen used God's word to answer the accusation that was leveled against him. For most of Stephen's speech, he invites his accusers to examine their shared history as Jews together. And he starts with Abraham, because Abraham is the start of God's people, the nation of Israel. He talks about the patriarchs. He brings up Joseph. He talks about Moses. He talks about Moses a lot and Moses' call and how Moses went to lead the people out of Egypt, but he was rejected. He talks about the law, and he ends up talking about the temple. He talks about the very things that he's being accused of speaking against, and he recounts to them their story of salvation in such a way that it points out to his accusers that because of their misunderstanding of their own scripture, they rejected Jesus, that they've misunderstood their own story. They didn't see the ways that their scriptures pointed to Jesus, and he points it out to them. It's a brilliant, brilliant narrative here. He didn't attack their credibility. He knew the facts. 
He, he knew the story, and he retold it, drawing a line from Abraham all the way to where they were. His two main points is that God repeatedly revealed himself and extended grace to the people. Over and over and over again, God proved himself faithful to the covenant that he made with his people. And God was faithful to continually raise up leaders to save the people, to, to turn their attention from their evil ways back to God. The Old Testament is full of stories of how God reached out or sent leaders to, to direct the people's focus back to God, to, to save them. But the second point of his message is the people continually rejected all of God's efforts, and they turned instead to idolatry, to, worship, to, to the worship of things that their own hands made, to their own creations. God constantly acted to empower the people to thwart the evil that was brought against them and to redeem them when they faltered. But the people continually said, no, I think we're good. Not sure if we, I'm not sure if we need that. We're more interested in the softer message over here. We don't really need you as the center of our story. It's a nice thing to, you know, we, we, it's part of our life, but it doesn't, we don't need it to be the, the very core. Stephen knew the story and what it meant, and he pointed him back to it. I think there's a lesson for us here. When, when the world asks us the basis for our belief and practice, we ought to tell them the story of God's faithfulness that we find in scriptures. You've got to know that story to be able to tell it. So get to know the story of the Bible. We're going through this journey of public reading, so it'll never be easier. Yes, it takes a little bit of sacrifice of time, but if you haven't heard the entire story of God, I invite you into that. Learn it. Know it. I was reading this week a survey that Barna put out on biblical literacy, or maybe I should say biblical illiteracy in our country. I think that they said that nine in ten households have a Bible, but only about 33% of people actually open up their Bible once a week. 33%. That's Christians included. That's, that's everybody that they surveyed. That has declined over the last decade or two significantly. There's fewer people, fewer and fewer people who are turning to the pages of Scripture. And folks, as, as Christ followers, we ought to know the story. And to know the story, it isn't enough just to show up in church on Sunday morning. It's opening the Word and reading it. So know the story. Number two, share the story. Stephen spoke with boldness. He knew the word of God. He knew the scriptures, and he spoke it out loud. And I'm, I'm guessing his audience also were 
they were knowledgeable about Scripture. So he's going through this history, and they're, they're nodding their head. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Hey, I knew that. Did you know that? He quoted from Isaiah right there. Six, chapter 66, verse 1 and 2, I think. You know how people do, like when, when the preacher or speaker says something that you know, you kind of you know, do a little elbow? Yeah, I do that. I knew that. Stephen had them going. He had their heads nodding yes, like this. He's telling our story. Of course, they've accused him. His accusers are saying, you don't, you, you may know the story, but you've misconstrued it. You, you don't understand what it means. And Stephen is saying, I know the story, and you don't understand what it means. But they're all in agreement. This is their shared, common history that he's rehearsing for them, and they're going like this. Yes, preach it, brother. But he was kind of setting them up, wasn't he? He's got them nodding their head, yes, so often that it would be really hard to go like this when he levels his accusation that's coming here. An accusation that would cut them to the heart. It would force them to respond. It's gonna, the accusation that he's going, about to level is going to force them to respond in one of two ways, in the affirmative or in rejection. In the affirmative would mean that they would repent. To reject it would mean that we get to the end of this story and Stephen ends up dead. See, good preaching, good teaching of the gospel ought to challenge and confront the sinful blindness of, of those who are held in captivity by the power of evil. When that kind of preaching happens, it gets really quiet in the room. When that kind of preaching happens, there's a lot of squirming. There's a lot of discomfort that we feel on the inside. There's a conviction that falls upon the hearers, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit. So when you, when you hear something that causes you to just cringe or bristle or flutter inside in a not good way, that's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, because the, the Bible says part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to call us out, to convict us, to challenge us when we're wrong so that we can move beyond the sinful, evil ways that we oftentimes think and act and live. The Holy Spirit says, you can, you can do way better than that. So when we feel uncomfortable, there's a choice. You can, you can shove it away and reject it. And let me tell you, the more you shove it away, the easier it's going to be to keep shoving it away and find yourself lost. So when you, when you feel that little nudge of the Holy Spirit, it's okay to repent. It's okay to respond in the affirmative. Thank you for pointing that out. I didn't, I didn't know that. Will you, will you forgive me? Can you help me do better? And he will. Look how Stephen's tone changes. He, he's been, in his whole speech, he goes through and it's we, our, we, our. This is our collective story, all the way from Abraham to where we are now, and we're touching on all of these high points that we've shared together, and he gets to verse 51, and it goes from we to you. He gets the bony finger out, I imagine, and he says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Well, 
That's not going to you know, win you many friends right there. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. It's a long sermon that leads up to a few verse. I mean, he got out the baseball bat right there. I mean, and he just whacked him. Three things that he, three charges that he levels against them there. One, you're stiff-necked, which that's what God called the people who had been disobedient when they were led out of Egypt into the wilderness. So picture this, they've been in slavery 400 years, right? Yes. God raises up Moses, sends him to Egypt, says, I want you to deliver my people. Moses like, I'm not sure if I'm the guy. And God says, you're the guy. Go. I've heard their cries, and I'm calling you to do something about it. So Moses went, appeared to Pharaoh. Finally, Pharaoh lets him go. They go out. They march, you know, out of Egypt, and they, you know, they get trapped by the sea, and they, you know, they, God helps them to get through the sea, and they're out in the wilderness over here, and, you know, whoo, this is great. We're free people. But no sooner do the waters crash back together, they're in the wilderness over there, and they start grumbling and complaining. Church people never do that. (laughs) So they're out in the wilderness. They end up at Mount Sinai, which was the destination so that they could worship God. Moses goes up the mountain to receive what we know as the Ten Commandments and the law, or the law, okay? So Moses is up on that mountain for quite a while, 40 days. And while he's up there, the people down here at the base of the mountain are getting a little bored with life. Hey, why are we out here in the wilderness? I thought we were supposed to go somewhere cool. I mean, there's nothing out here. There's barely anything to eat. Hey, Aaron, we need something to worship. We need an idol. Fashion us an idol. Aaron's like, I don't know if that's really going to, I don't think, I think that's, cross on the line. They're like, no, do it for us. It'll be cool. We'll have a big party. We'll dance around it. Woohoo! And, and Aaron, he's like, well, oh, you know, okay, well, bring, bring me all your gold. And, and uh, so they put it in the fire and melt it down, and Aaron fashions an idol, a golden calf. Moses comes down and sees it, and he crashes the first set of the law, right? Yes. <clears throat> Work with me. (laughs) (laughs) Moses confronts Aaron. Hey, how did this happen? I don't know. It just came out of the fire. Are we two? Are we three? I mean, it just happened, Mom. So in all of that, there's an accusation leveled against the people you are stiff-necked and consistently reject all of the good things that I'm trying to do for you. I'm trying to save you, and yet you push back on it and resist. Stephen brings that up. 
You have uncircumcised, you have uncircumcised hearts and ears. He's comparing them to those that Jeremiah had condemned as unfaithful to the covenant. He says that their ears are closed, that they cannot hear, and the word of the Lord is offensive to them. That's what that accusation, that's how they would have heard that accusation. They would have understood that. And the third one is, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. It's going back again to the resistance that the people had of God's saving activity in their life. He, Stephen is charging them with the same offenses of their ancestors. They rejected the prophets. They rejected Jesus. You call yourselves children of Abraham, but you're not obedient like Abraham was. You continue to resist God by opposing the apostles even now. At the very core of Stephen's accusation is, you're accusing me of speaking against the law, and you're not even following the law yourself. You don't even know or understand what the law points to. You missed it. Kind of a sidebar here. Stephen took a long time. He's, he, uh, he knew the story. And he shared the story. And for most of what he said, he was part of the audience. He was talking, conversing with the people in a way that made him part of it. This is we. We. You would, in relationship building, you would, you would look at the first part of his message as a way that he was connecting with his, with his audience, with, with another person. Building some relationship capital, if you will, before he leveled his accusation. And I think there's a lesson for the church today, for Christians today, that we need to remind ourselves that, that conviction comes before correction. He, he had to tell the story. He had to set it up and get their heads nodding, yes. And then, and then he un- peels back the curtain, and then he uncovers the problem that they had. Sometimes I think that we, as a church, we go for correction before conviction. So we think if we address all people, you know, everybody's moral flaws and failures, things that are wrong with them, and we, we just try and put band-aids over them, and hey, you got to get all cleaned up before you come into church. We forget one huge part of what Stephen has laid out for us. we got to have the relationship first. The accusation against Christians is that we only care how people behave. I don't want you to behave like that. I don't, I don't want you to believe that. I don't want you to have those values. But if you've never done the work to, be, to, to talk about a shared story of being human together, what, what kind of witness is that? If we are always just going for moral correctness, instead of going for the opportunity to let the Holy Spirit do the work through sharing the story. That's why we talk about it often in this place. This is a place 
where we are becoming a people who deeply care about people's stories. People are welcome to come in here and hang out with Jesus before all their problems are fixed. That's what a church is, folks. Yes, nod your head yes. That's us. That's what you should tell your friends and your neighbors. This is a place and a people who is willing to journey with them in a journey of discovery. Let them come and hang out with Jesus for a while and let the Holy Spirit do that work. You don't necessarily have to be the one who corrects all their moral behavior. You can point them in the right direction. And you can trust that the Holy Spirit will do that work. And you can, we're getting to this in a moment here, you can live the story out in front of them so that they can see that it's possible and it can be done. Right? That's the Christian journey. Living out loud before other people. So you know the story, you can share the story and tell it, which is sharing the truth. You're not backing away from the truth. You're not softening the message. You know the story. You're sharing it, which is the truth. And you live it out in front of people so that they know that we actually practice the things that we say in a way that's compelling. Because that, sometimes in our history, maybe we've come across as people who are a cut above. We take the moral high ground. We get up on some kind of perch and we look down and we forget that I was down there before. Right? We need to make sure that people know we're, we're all on the same level. And that there's hope that Jesus can transform their life. Because when there's a big gap between where somebody thinks they are and where you present yourself to be, sometimes it can look like too much of a journey. That's too hard. I don't, I don't know if I can ever do that. But if we know the story and the brokenness that we come from, and we can share our story and the story that we find in the Word, what happens is people's imaginations start to explode, like, wow, I, you, you were there? It's possible through the power of the Holy Tell me more about this. And you live it out loud in such a way that it's encouraging to people that they can imagine themselves taking those steps. So Stephen, he led with this common history. But he ended by telling them that he thought that he understood their own story better than they did. He tells them that Moses pointed toward Jesus, who's the true fulfillment of the law, whom they rejected and killed. Jesus is the center. The temple's not the center. He tells them that their story is incomplete without the person of Jesus. That's a good word to remember. Your story's not complete if Jesus isn't at the center of it. Now, there's a lot of good storylines out there that are really compelling. Careers, money, 
popularity, sports, appearance, whatever it is for you, there's a lot of narratives out there that are very compelling. But if Jesus isn't at the very center of it, it's always going to lead to frustration. It's always going to lead to a sense of not feeling fulfilled. And so as a church, one of the responsibilities that we have is to continually encourage one another to keep Jesus as the Lord, Jesus as the center of our stories, of our individual stories, and the center of our story together. So at the end of this Stephen's speech, it got the crowd's attention. Um, and not in a good way. Verse 54, they responded in anger. The members of the Sanhedrin heard this and they were furious. They were literally cut to the heart. They, they clenched their teeth. They gnashed their teeth and their faces, I imagine, turned red and their veins are popping right here and they're just clenched jaws and, and they're angry. And in this moment, Stephen, he doesn't leave well enough alone. He knows that he's being rendered a guilty verdict. I think he understands what's about to happen. And he says, I see the heavens open right now. And Jesus is standing at God's right hand. And in the language of the courtroom, what Stephen has just said is, you've rendered a guilty verdict right here, but I can see Jesus standing right next to God, and he is vindicating me, and in the courts of the heavens, I'm innocent. And that only angers them a little bit more, because he has just confirmed what they think is blasphemy, that Jesus is equated with God, and so they just, they're fury overwhelms them and they grab him and they haul him out of the city and they pick up the stones and they stone him to death. It was an illegal execution. It was an illegal trial. God's word confronted them and they responded by rejecting it yet again. And so Stephen becomes the first martyr. He lived the story there's many other things that we could say. But notice, in, in closing up this, this morning, notice how Stephen dies. It's very, very, very similar to the way Jesus died on the cross. He, he lived what he preached. He lived the story. His character reflected that of his Lord and Savior. And as they are hurling the stones, he calls down a blessing and forgiveness on his enemies. Please forgive them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. That always gets my attention. It causes me to wonder, how often, how, how do I act when people level accusations against me? When I feel like I'm under attack, do I call down blessing? Do I call down forgiveness in the moment? It's a challenge to know the story. 
challenged to share the story. And it's certainly a challenge to work moment by moment, day by day, to live into the ongoing story of God in our lives. Let's commit together to put Jesus at the very center of all we say and do. Can you do that? We'll work on it together. How about that? All right. The people of God said, amen. I'm going to have the worship team come back and um, our ushers come forward.